gulf that separated me from Christ my Lord. Was so vast the crossing I could never afford. From where I was to his demand, it seemed so far. I cried, dear Lord, I cannot come to where you are. He came to me. bound in chains of sin. He came to me when I possessed no hope within. He picked me up and drew me gently to his side. Where today in his sweet love, I now abide. He came to me. Praise the Lord. That's a great song with a tremendous message. Amen? Amen. Well, I, I wanted to share this with you. I was pretty encouraged as I was reading through. Um, let's, let's see here. Oh, yeah. I was reading about, you know, uh, you know we live in a, an age when people aren't very appreciative, right? Well, there was a former student. He returned to his university campus one day to give his, geolo his geology professor a gift of a unique soil sample that he had collected from a river while he was on a trip. He handed over the gift and the former student said, this is for all the help and support you gave me while I was at school. That was very nice of him. And the professor got kind of choked up, you know, he's kind of, it moved him quite a bit and he said, I really appreciate the sediment. <laughs> you know, if you don't, Sentiment, sediment, okay, yeah, okay, all right. Well, turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19. I want you to go to Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> I had a message all prepared last week when I stepped, uh, went into the church over at the um, in Santa Domingo, I was supposed to preach there at uh, Brother Autry's church, and I, I did, but I had it all ready to go. Man, I mean, it had points, and it had a wonderful outline, and all kind of illustrations, and all, man, it was, it was beautiful. 
And, uh, and the Lord just, I had this little teeny outline in John 3.16, and the Lord just said, you just need to preach that little simple message right there, because they're never going to get through all that mess. <laughs> you know, when you have an interpreter, it changes everything, let me tell you. And uh, I realized that uh, at that moment, ah, I'm, I'm pushing the envelope a little too much here. I think we better stick with the basics. And boy, let me tell you what, the Lord took it and used it. And I think it was a blessing. And uh, I thank the Lord for that. But you're not going to get that. So anyway, <clears throat> during Sunday school, the teacher asked her class of first graders if anyone could describe a Christian. A little boy quickly raised his hand and he said, well, Christians are nice people who never complain, argue, or talk back. But then he also added, my daddy's a good Christian, but my mommy isn't. <laughs> you know, it's obvious that this first grader had some expectations on what he believed to be a good Christian. And by the way, God has some expectations for us as his children as well. Again, here in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, let's begin reading. Luke chapter 19, verse 11, the Bible says, And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, Therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. He called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass, when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, Thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, uh, excuse me, in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise unto him, Be thou also over five cities. Now again, it seems that the implication is that uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that he's going to hold us accountable for something. And in this particular case, he says to him, now that you've been faithful in this little bit that I've given you, you've utilized it properly, you didn't waste it or consume it on your lust, you didn't simply throw it away or you didn't simply hide it away, you actually pre-produced it, you actually used it for good and for God. I'm going to give you authority over 10 cities now in the millennium. It's interesting that the responsibility that God gives us on earth is a pre, a kind, of a, a, a kind of prepares us for the future that we have, that what we invest today will ultimately produce tomorrow. That if we've been faithful in that little thing that God has given us today in obedience and faithfulness, we'll have much more to be over in the long run. Because God's saying, listen, you've proved yourself faithful, therefore allow me to extend to you more to be faithful over. Now again, he continues, however, and we're going to see that something changes here. Verse 20, and another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Now takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knowest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou thy money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? Why didn't you at least put it in the bank and get some interest? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. Wow. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty sobering picture. Jesus Christ is 
Letting us all know that he's coming back one day. And when he comes back, he's going to hold us accountable for what he has given us. If you ask me what that sounds like, is that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has some expectations. He says to that third, he says, thou wicked servant. Wait a second, you mean to tell me that he's going to look at one and pat him on the back and say, well done, look at the other and say, oh, good job, you did such a good job with what I gave you. Oh, you're wicked. It sounds to me like God has some expectations for his people then. Expectation means a belief that someone will or should achieve something. And although expectations do exist in our society, They're more often frowned upon than encouraged, it seems, at least in our media. Employees cannot be expected to be on time all the time. Teachers can't expect their students to turn in all their homework or attend all classes at all times. Parents can't expect their children to obey them just because they say so. Husbands and wives must temper their expectations for one another because roles are being rewritten and traditions are being trampled upon or underfoot. I mean, this mentality has subtly infiltrated the church and caused believers to question God's right to demand things of his children even. I mean, he's God and all, but he has to understand that I'm just human. Right? I mean, there are pressures and forces that are beyond my control that determine my course in life and affect every decision I make. Now, you may agree with God that he has rights or a right to expect some things of you, but are there some things that, in your opinion, are unrealistic in our day and age? I mean, maybe 50 years ago, you could have expected me to do this or that or say this or that or dress this way or that way or, or uh, uh, respond this way or that way. But today, today's different. Biblical expectations can be uncomfortable. They can be inconvenient, but they are never unrealistic, nor are they ever unnecessary. As daunting and as difficult as Some of God's expectations may seem at times. The fact is that they're in our best interest and they serve us more than we could ever serve them. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1, the apostle Paul is speaking. He says, finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is letting them know that there's some things that he's going to share with them that are in their best interest. That it's in their best interest that he shares it. Why? Because what he's going to share is going to provide them some safety. And what is it that he ultimately shares with them as he moves along in chapter 3? Well, he warns them of false teachers who would seek to devour them by turning them back to a works-based faith. Oh, no, grace by faith is not salvation. You have to do something to keep your salvation. He says, no, 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 no. That is not true at all. That is false doctrine. And I'm telling you now, you need to be careful. And if you will only be saved if you abide by what I'm telling you. He would remind them of the need to live a crucified life in chapter 3. But those things you once depended on, those things that you once thought kept you right with God or in favor with God, those deeds, those actions, those uh, 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 things in and of themselves, don't do it. It's all by grace through faith. The fact is, is that you have to die to self daily. You got to continue to surrender to me, submit to me, and yield to me. And he would point out to them, we're really in trouble here, guys, help me out. And he would point out to them, uh, point them toward the finish line in chapter 3. And he would remind them to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, he's saying, listen, there's some expectations here. I'm telling you, you're going to have to die to self. You're going to have to crucify the flesh. You're going to have to focus your attention on the finish line. And you can't quit. You can't stop. You've got to keep running in order to gain the prize. 
Not only is that safe for you, but it's also going to be prosperous in the end. Again, it's important to remember that the Apostle Paul shared what was needed and provided safety to the believer. And that's why John could say with confidence in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, for this, is the, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. You say, but those commandments are not always easy to follow. They're not always easy to, 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 to obey. Exactly, they're not always easy. There are circumstances and situations that even make us feel very compromised in doing so. However, they are always profitable and they are not grievous because they do not bring bad, they bring good. So however challenging living up to God's expectations may be, it's worth it. And therefore, our own good. That's what he's teaching us. Again, someone may say, well, I can't live up to his expectations in my life. I mean, I'm just too weak. I'm just a human, you know. Well, as a child of God, you have a living being living inside of you. Matter of fact, you have Christ in you in the person of the Holy Ghost. I mean, he is the one who empowers. He's the one who enables you and I to live the Christian life successfully. That life is a spiritual life, and although it's manifest in this flesh, it's only made possible by way of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's kind of funny, while I was going through these verses, something hit me, and I started writing this stuff all out. Certain things that hit me. And I got all the way through it, and then Brother Kavanaugh walks in and says, here are some of the topics that we want to utilize during our, our couples, our, our family conference. And I had a whole page I'd written out. And I thought, well, there's my lesson. It fit perfectly. I'm going to deal with addiction in the home. Because right here is the key to overcoming addiction. So you might want to be a part of the family conference. Friday and Saturday this week. What time does it start Friday. 6.30 this Friday it begins, all right? You be a part of it. You need to come. And so verse 25, if, I didn't say all of you have an addiction, but I'm just saying that it's a good thing to learn about. But anyway, verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So what we know is that God does have some expectations. The Lord has expectations for us. They're not bad. It's really in our best interest. It's safe to live up to His expectations. It's prosperous to live up to his expectations. But he has expectations. So what are we expected to do as believers? That's a good question. And so I want to give you, if I have time, five things. And I'm just talking about just five, because there's other things, obviously. But let me give you five things that God expects of us, or that the Lord Jesus expects of us. And so let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. Thank you again for all you do for us. We need you today. Lord, again, our hearts are heavy as we think about the world and the hurt and the heartache that exists in, the, in this, this uh, place we call earth. And Lord, we know that one day you'll wipe all tears away. And, and that, Lord, the place we are going to end up in as believers is so joyous and so wonderful. But Father, we have to live on earth. We have to face each day. And Lord, we want to do that in a way that pleases you and honors you. Now, Father, bless us today. May your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. May you fill me with your Holy Ghost. And may I be your mouthpiece. Lord, I have nothing to give this thy people except you give it to me first and that I may give it to them. And I pray, Lord, that you just use me today. Father, uh, help us. And Lord, may we leave here better for having been here today. If there be any that are without Christ, may they settle their soul salvation even this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So what we talk about expectations. What does God expect of us as believers now? First, number one, we're expected to surrender. 
to surrender. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're going to get started at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. Now, I know that when we come to Jesus Christ, we submit our will to his will. We admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior, and we receive and accept him into our life as Lord. But there is a point where we have to literally choose to surrender our will and our life to him. I know we were saved, but there's a conscious surrender on a continual basis. Notice what he says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You say, I don't think that's true. I don't think we need to surrender. Well, then why did Paul talk about it in Romans 12, 1 and 2? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice again, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now again, I don't know any other way to say it or any easier way to say it, but then when I was in the military, I've used this over and over again, but I'll continue to because it's perfectly clear. But when I was a private or when I was a, uh, 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 you know, uh, an E4, I, I would go before, say, the captain, and I would uh, knock on the door, and I'd walk into the office, I'd stand at attention, Private O'Donnell reporting for duty, sir. What I was really saying is, whatever you need me to do, you just give me the order and I'm going. That's what presenting ourselves to the Lord really is all about. We're literally, we are soldiers, the Bible tells us, and so we go to our commander-in-chief, and instead of wanting to do what we're going to do or what we want to do, we simply say, hey, Mark O'Donnell reporting for duty, sir. Come on, give me, the, give me the instruction, give me the command, give me the order. I'm going to do whatever I'm told to do. I'm surrendering my will to your will. And that's exactly what God expects of us as believers. You say, but he don't expect that of me. You haven't read the Bible, friend. You don't understand. You are not an island. You don't live alone. You don't get to make up the rules. God makes up the rules. I don't make up the rules. This church doesn't make up the rules. No religion makes up the rules. God in heaven who created all things, he makes up the rules, and they're written in the Word of God. In January of 1991, some of you will remember this, U.S. and Allied forces gathered together in Iraq and Kuwait, and they decisively defeated the Iraqi army. In 100 hours... During air and ground operations, U.S. and Allied forces destroyed over 3,000 tanks, 1,400 armored personnel carriers, 2,200 artillery pieces, along with countless other vehicles. But hold on. For those who think that that coalition of troops of Operation Desert Storm must have set some kind of record with their 100-hour assault against Iraq, The record book of history says otherwise. The shortest war on record was fought between Britain and Zanzibar on August the 27th, 1896. Now again, I don't want to go into, you know, uh, God fought a battle, because when God fights battles, he simply speaks and it's over. So we're talking about humans. (laughs) I mean, 185,000 Assyrians died without a a shot being fired, right? So I'm not going there, okay? I don't know how long that took, but it probably didn't take long, right? But listen to this. This is amazing. The shortest war on record was fought between Britain and Zanzibar on August the 27th, 1896. The huge British fleet issued an ultimatum to the Sultan of Zanzibar. And then it followed with 38 minutes of bombardment before the mismatched Sultan finally said, we'll never be able to stand against this, and surrendered. 38 minutes later. 38 minutes. You know, surrender, that word, most often comes with a feeling of defeat or loss, right? I had to surrender something. person surrenders, it's like they just gave up, right? They quit, right? Because that's how we use it. That's, that's how it's normally a, kind of the connotation and even... Many times in our mind, it's a denotation, but it's not necessary. The truth is that, let's be honest, fighting with God never ends in our favor. 
You, you talk about an overwhelming or an unmatched adversary, if you will. Unfortunately for us, God's not our adversary necessarily, especially as believers, he's not. You listen, we're never going to win when warring with him. But can I tell you, we never lose when we surrender either. God's not some bully in heaven who's going to twist your arm and demand you as a believer to obey. But he does have expectations for his own, and those expectations include surrender. Running up the white flag to his will, his purpose in your life, begins an exciting journey of hope, joy, peace, and purpose. How many believers are fighting God all the time, standing in opposition to his leadership, unwilling to surrender to his authority? As a result, their lives are wrecked and ruined. Why? Because they fail to simply surrender. See, God expects you and I to surrender. Anything less will leave us empty and wanting in this life. But not only is his expectation to surrender, but we're also expected to stand. In 1 Corinthians, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, would you please? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. I'm going to share a number of verses, so I'm going to move quickly once we get to that verse. But notice what it says here in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men, be strong. And someone say, well, that's stand fast. Well, it's two words over there, right there. I'm just looking at it. It's two words. So there's stand and fast. We're to stand first, then stand fast. If you're not standing, you can't stand fast, right? Okay, I mean, we're talking about that. I mean, it's simple, right? It's pretty clear. Hold on, in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's been said there are an infinity of angles at which one falls. Only one at which one stands. Listen to that again. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls. Only one at which one stands. I, I mean, you need to think about that, and I do too. Can I, can I tell you that only the Word of God describes the angle by which we stand? <laughs> and we're all trying to find ways to stand in this world. We're trying to find ways to stand in our marriages and stand in our homes and stand here and stand there. But let me tell you, there's an infinity of possibilities of falling. There's only one way to stand. And it's outlined and clearly placed in the Word of God for us. <laughs> Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Philippians 4, 1, therefore, my, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. God expects his children to stand and to stand fast. You and I cannot cower before the pressures of our society or our culture. We've got to stand firm on the fixed and firm foundation of Jesus Christ. We're not to build our lives on sinking sand, but on the solid rock. In Matthew chapter 7, we know that our Lord speaks to us of this issue. When he talks to us and he says, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. By the way, that rock is none other than Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, Jesus Christ is none other than the Word of God. You go ahead and toss your Bible aside and you fail to read it, study it, memorize it, and meditate upon it, my friend. You are in sinking sand. I don't care how often you go to church. It doesn't matter how often you sing in the choir. It doesn't matter how many times you teach a Sunday school lesson, friend. When you discard this book in, out of your life, if you remove it from your marriage, if you don't have it at the center of your home, you are on sinking sand. And he says, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not. Why? Because it was founded upon a rock. 
But he makes it clear to us if it's not founded upon a rock, but instead it's built upon the sand. He says, the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. God expects his children to stand. Stand for truth. Stand for right. Stand for Jesus Christ. What is the alternative? Fall. To fall. You and I either stand or we fall. It's that simple. It's not that it's not, not complicated. Not only are we to, as we put it earlier, surrender. Not only are we to stand, but he also has an expectation. He says we're to serve. We're to serve. Way back there in the Old Testament, we, we know about Samuel. And Samuel was just a young fellow, but there he was. Uh, and, and, and he's under the authority of Eli, and, and, and all of a sudden he starts to hear voices. Uh-oh, that's scary, right? Fortunately for him, it was the Lord speaking. Man, I mean, before it's over with, he gets some information. He says, listen, if you hear that voice again, you just say, speak, Lord, for thy servant hear it. And Samuel, Samuel heard that voice, and he said, speak, for thy servant hear it. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, for they themselves shew of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Do you know what that voice was trying to express to Samuel at that point? You, go, you, better, you better take care of some things. There's some things I'm going to have you do in your life. I'm going to have you watch over this temple. I'm going to have you take care of the people. I'm gonna, you're going to be a prophet to me. You're going to serve me. Well, guess what? That's what he tells, that's what Paul the Apostle is saying to the Thessalonians. He says, listen, we have heard. We have been privy to what's been taking place. We know how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You didn't just turn to God from idols. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Can I tell you, it's not enough for a Christian to be a Christian. You've got to be a serving Christian if you want to fulfill the expectations of God in your life. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And that's what that's all about. He didn't save you to sit, he saved you to serve. And the fact is, is that too many times we find ourselves more interested in convenience and comfort than we are in following the commands of Christ. Listen to this story, the I, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy this, uh, but the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant was heavily damaged in 2011 by a tsunami. The nuclear plant was heavily damaged. Where? In Japan. But anyway, <laughs> it resulted in three meltdowns. Three meltdowns. Get this, 200 Japanese retirees volunteered to fix the nuclear crisis at the power station. The group is called the Skilled Veterans Corps. They're led by a fellow by the name of Mr. Yamada. He and his group exposed themselves to radiation. Exposed themselves to the radiation and went in and fixed that reactor. You say, why would they do that? Well, they tell us why. They said, so that young people won't have to. He went on to say, I am 72 years old, and on average, I probably have 13 to 15 years left to live. Even if I were exposed to radiation, cancer could take 20 to 30 years or longer to develop. The older ones have less chance of getting cancer. I don't know about you, but I found that to be extremely amazing. I mean, the sense of, of, of regard for the youth, the sense of, of responsibility of these older people in Japan to, to bear the burden of service at a time like this. When most people in America are kicking back, relaxing, and, and taking their ease and saying, I've retired, I've retired from work, I've retired from home, I've retired from church, I'm retired. They said, no, we're willing to put ourselves in jeopardy in order to save the next generation. Amen. We've read in the Bible about another one who literally laid down his life for others. His name is Jesus. 
Talk about service, right? God expects us to give our lives in service to him and to others as well. Why did he save us? Why did he do that? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Turn there, would you please? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. As we begin to read chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we recognize that it's referring to and speaking about salvation, of which each and every one of us must participate in. We must all consciously accept and receive Christ as our Savior. It's not enough that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sin. He died for the world, but that's not enough to get you personally into heaven. You have to personally accept responsibility for your sin. You have to accept the responsibility that your sin placed him on the cross. You then have to acknowledge the fact that you are unable under any circumstance to pay your sin debt other than to be separated forever in a place called the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20, verse 14. Then you call on Christ and you admit that he alone is Savior and Lord, that he's the only one that can wash your sin away. He's the only one that can truly receive you unto himself. It's not going to be what you do that garnishes or gains his favor. It's what he's already done on Calvary on your behalf, literally paying the penalty for sin. He was our propitiation, the Bible tells us in 1 John, which means that he himself was the only righteous sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice of a holy and righteous God. And he did that for you, and he did that for me. You say he did it for the world, yes, but the whole world's not going to heaven. Only those who acknowledge his sacrifice, only those that are thankful for what he did and accept what he did as their payment for salvation and their sin, excuse my payment for their sin. So we see that here in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. Notice that. It's grace. Unmerited favor. Not anything you or I did to deserve it. It's grace. Through faith. Exercising faith. That we believe that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. That he did indeed die on Calvary. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day. That his sacrifice is sufficient payment for our sin. Notice again, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. You have nothing at all to do with your salvation, neither do I in that sense. Nothing. It is the gift of God. That's pretty clear. Not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. In our own humanness, we'd be more than happy to take some kind of uh, uh, pat on the back. We'd be glad to here, well done. We, we, we like to be told, man, you did a good job. But he says, no, nobody gets to claim any kind of accolade. Nobody gets to receive any kind of glory for your salvation but me. So he says, lest any man should boast. You don't have any reason to boast. You have no reason to say, look what I've done. Now watch this. So we have salvation in verses 8 and 9. Obviously, it's very clear. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto what? Unto what? I only hear about six or eight. I'm telling you, this is important. God has an expectation. Why did he save your soul? Why did he give to you the gifts that you now possess in your life? You say, I'm good with my hands. I can really do well with carpentry. I can, I'm good with big equipment or I'm, I'm really good with, with uh, uh, proofreading and I'm good with English and I've got an aptitude for mathematics and I've got uh, uh, an ability to deal and cope with problems. And why did God give you these gifts, these abilities, these characteristics, the qualities that you now have? Because you're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works. He has a game plan, a master plan for you and your life. And it includes service to him. Which God hath what? Before ordained that ye should walk in him. What? Those good works. 
Man, those works are outlined in the Word of God, but then also there are aspects of our, our work that can be done because of our, our, the gifts God's given us. But He is clear, and that He wants us to use those gifts on His behalf, that He, in His Word, dictate and determine, and long before expected us to serve Him, long before we were ever saved, we are to serve Him. You say, but I'm not good at that and I'm uncomfortable with serving. You are not measuring up to his expectation, thou wicked servant. Hold on, we're going back to the passage we started with. Remember, now listen, don't get mad at me here. I'm not, I'm not saying you're a bad person, but let me tell you, God is going to identify us in the end. Remember, there were those servants that he gave those talents to. Do you think those talents are only representative of money? No, they're not indeed. So here we are. We've been left with abilities. We've been left with, with talents. We've been left with, with responsibility. We've been given the Holy Ghost of God and the Word of God that's pure and perfect and holy. And he says, listen, I've set you here on this planet, this celestial globe, for a reason to serve me, to give back to me something after I've given you everything. And he says, so here it is. And I'm not giving you more than the next. You all have equal opportunity to serve me with what I've given you. I'm not going to compare you to him. I'm not going to compare you to him. I've given you one and you one and you one. What will you do with what I've given you? And if you take that that he's given you and you fulfill the expectation by serving God, maybe your service won't have as many souls saved as someone else's service. But then again... Are you obedient? Are you completely yielded? Are you surrendered? Are you standing? Are you serving with all your heart, best you can? Because when he returns, he's going to look at what we've done with what he's given us. You say, well, I don't make enough money to give much. He's not talking just about your money. How much of yourself are you giving? Because that's what he's really interested in here. And okay, here it is. What have you done with it? Well, I, I multiplied it ten times. I, I went out and did the very best I could, and I've watched God use me, and he's answered prayers. And man, I'll tell you what, I fulfill, have been fulfilled in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a blessing in my life now, but also it's produced fruit for the future. It's amazing what God has used me to do in the lives of others. Oh, I may not have done as much as he or she did, but I've done everything I could, and I'm so thankful God used me. And he says, man, you are a faithful servant. How about you? Well, I didn't do as much as them, but I did. I did the best I could. I, I did. He's like, are you talking, kidding me? Praise the Lord. And the next one, well, I, I knew you was a hard servant. I'll tell you what, Jesus. I know how you are. It's never good enough. Never good. No matter what I do, I never measure up. I always fall short, and so therefore I might as well just face the facts. I could never be used of you. I could never do anything with what you've given me because every time I do something around here, my parents think I'm a loser. Oh, my wife thinks I'm a mess. Oh, my husband thinks I can never do enough. And I know my whole life I've been told I can't ever accomplish anything, that I might as well have no expectations on me because I'm always going to blow it. I'm always going to leave everybody feeling like, like I let them down. That's why most of us don't do anything for God too, by the way. We've been programmed to think that we're losers. We think that we're nothing. We don't think that we could ever accomplish anything. By the way, it's not you anyway, remember. It's the Holy Spirit in you. It's God working through you. So quit thinking about yourself so much and start thinking about Him and what He can do in your life. Because, see, you are not limited by what others think of you. You are empowered by what He thinks of you. And so I'm just saying, that last servant, what did He call him? What did God, what did the Lord say? That wicked servant. I don't want to be a wicked servant. Man, I want to be a faithful servant. I don't know. I may only have two talents when I get back up there. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. I at least want to get some usury out of it, if you will. I want to at least get some interest on that thing God gave me. I don't want to go up empty-handed. And that's what he's saying. I've got some expectations for you. I've empowered all of you with the Holy Ghost. I've given all of you the Word of God. I've given all of you every opportunity to succeed because it's not you, it's me in you. What are you going to do with me? I'm going to quit right there with number three, but he says there's some expectations. Surrender. Surrender. 
stand, serve. Back in 1958, a baby boy was born into the Lane family. The father, a man named Robert, chose to name his boy Winner. I mean, how could a young fella fail to succeed with a name like Winter Lane? Now, this is, it. this is a true story, by the way. You can look it up. Several years passed, and the Lanes had another son. For whatever reason, nobody really understands why, Robert named his boy Loser. You look it up. You think I'm making it up. I'm not. I looked it up because I thought this can't be true. <clears throat> I mean, let's face it, how tragic to loom, uh, to, to doom a boy's future by calling him loser. I mean, loser lane. I wonder how many counseling sessions it took to undo all that mess. <laughs> of course, all the family friends thought that they knew how the two boys' lives would kind of unfold, right? You know, we've been told all these things, right, our whole life. Well, you can call somebody else long enough, they'll believe it, they'll do it, blah, blah, blah. Right? We've been told that. Right? Hold on, you haven't heard, as Paul Harvey said, the rest of the story. <laughs> but contrary to all expectations, Loser Lane succeeded. He graduated from college and he later became a sergeant with the New York Police Department, shield number 2762. Nowadays, no one feels comfortable, or at least in those days, no one felt comfortable calling him Loser. I mean, his colleagues simply referred to him as Lou. He probably told him, you call me Loser, right? <laughs> what of the other brother? I mean, come on. A name that can't miss, right? Winter Lane. Well, the most noteworthy achievement of Winter Lane is that, I guess it would be his criminal record. His inmate number was 00, or shoot, 00R28Q7. He had nearly two dozen arrests for burglary, domestic violence, and trespassing. Winter Lane. Winter Lane. You know, the Bible calls us new creatures. It says that we are more than conquerors. It calls us the sons of God. It says we are citizens of heaven. We're ambassadors for Christ. We are called Christians. And the list just keeps on going, doesn't it? However, as we learned, a name isn't enough to inspire greatness, is it? How many of us hold the name Christian? Child of God. Son of God. Ambassador for Christ, yet have never lived up to it. See, it's not enough to have a name. It'll never inspire greatness in and of itself. There has to be a proper mindset. In our case, we must be committed to following and obeying. We must be determined to live up to God's expectation. We are to surrender our all to the one who gave all. We're to stand for the one who humbled himself. We're to serve the one who sacrificed everything. Will you live up to his expectations, believer? Will I? You say, I don't know. I don't know that anybody can. Okay, then let me put it a different way. Will you try? What I found is that whatever we try to do, we usually get done. I just want to encourage you not to be defeated as believers, not to think somehow because somebody else told you who and what you were that you can't do something big for God. Don't listen to the naysayers and don't listen even to your family members who somehow look down on you or may think you as being useless or, use, uh, or, or of no value. That's not true. I don't care what they say. God looks at you totally and completely differently. We saw some of the names he calls us. We recognize that he has high expectations because he's given us so awfully much.
And you know what? He will enable you to live up to those expectations. Just being a Christian isn't enough. Let's make it our goal in life to honor and please the one who saved our soul, who gave to us eternal life. Let's do our best. Filled with the Spirit. You may not know Christ as your Savior. We pointed to the cross a little bit ago and expressed some truths about Christ and the Word of God and, and, and His sacrifice. We could go back in our mind's eye and we can see the Savior on Calvary. We can see Him being carried off and placed in a tomb. We can even try to, in our mind's eye, See the resurrected Christ. But that in and of itself is not enough to save your soul, to forgive your sin. It's a personal acknowledgement. He didn't do that just for the world. He did that for you. I want to encourage you to trust him today as your savior. Stop trying to find a way out of your problems through human intellect and wisdom. Instead, turn to the one who created you and can save you and give you not only eternal life, but joy, peace, and purpose in this life as well. Amen. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all you've done for us and all you do. We are a needy people. And today we gather asking that you would be glorified in this service and even in this message, Lord, may you take it and may it be applied to our lives personally. There might be a believer today who is somehow bought into the idea that they could never measure up to your expectation or your standards. And Lord, that's not true. Maybe they have chosen to go a different path. Lord, may they choose to come back to you and allow you to have control, to first surrender, then to stand for you and to serve you. Father, I pray to your God that you would just help us. Lord, it's not a matter of uh, trying to shame anyone or hurt anyone. Lord, it's just we want to please you. And Lord, I pray, dear God, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would realize there is more than just this life. There is eternity that awaits us. Help us to prepare ourselves for the future. What a terrible thing it would be to spend our lives amassing wealth and authority and power and things only to enter into the millennium as a believer with nothing in essence. To just simply get there by the skin of our teeth. To just simply make it. And the rest of our days, we, for that thousand year millennium, we are just kind of watching others who prove themselves faithful and little caring for the things that matter most in that day and age. Help us, Lord, prepare for that day. To in this life, give you our best, filled with the Spirit. Lord, we'll thank you, we'll praise you. Father, we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand to our